This is The Light Inside. I'm Jeffrey Biesecker. Knowledge. It's one of the only resources that grows as we share it. Yet sometimes that's not so easy. Why do we sometimes find it so difficult to share our knowledge? And furthermore, why at times does it seem so challenging to accept the valid input and constructive criticism of others? Since ancient times, when the words know thyself were inscribed at the temple of Apollo at Delphi, sages and philosophers have hailed the importance of self-knowledge. Modern research, however, has called its value into question. For instance, research on self-delusion has found that holding unrealistically positive views of oneself and one's future prospects can promote emotional and even physical well-being. In today's discussion, we explore how different levels of consciousness, such as seeing the world through rose-colored glasses, can also sow the seeds of self-doubt. Tune in to find out how when we return to The Light Inside. A fine line exists between confidence and arrogance, and many in positions of power, such as politicians and CEOs, are often labeled arrogant. Although confidence can serve both as a blessing and a curse, new research from the University of Notre Dame shows how people can reap the rewards without risking the social penalties of overconfidence. As we're left to wonder, is overconfidence often a social liability? The effect of verbal versus nonverbal expressions of confidence is forthcoming in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology from Nathan Mickle. The paper illustrating postdoctoral research and teaching associated at the University of Notre Dame's Mendoza College of Business. It reveals an accountability loophole, a way for people to enhance their status without risking punishment for overconfidence. It shows that expressing confidence non-verbally through making eye contact, gesturing, adopting an expansive posture, or speaking in a strong voice allows people to enjoy the social benefits of expressing confidence, simultaneously reducing the risk they'll be punished for overconfidence. It is thus viewing the self through mildly rose-tinted glasses may be beneficial in some circumstances but our psychological blind spots may be doing us more harm than good. When sidestepping the pitfalls of overconfidence, recognizing when we engage plausible deniability allows us to shine a light on our more surreptitious blind spots. In the pursuit of happiness, one particularly problematic obstruction may lie in our implicit attitudes, motives, and self-views. Associations that resist conscious access or control. That is, our inability to access non-conscious knowledge may undermine our ability to select courses of action that will make us happy. It's interesting to learn how comparing yourself to others can cause a downward spiral of negative thinking. Mikhail Polanyi was a Hungarian-British polymath who made important theoretical contributions to physical chemistry, economics, and philosophy. He recognized that knowledge is not knowledge itself. Now stay with me on this, dividing it into so-called explicit knowledge and implicit or tactic knowledge. Explicit knowledge is clearly communicated by means of science, which is spoken in written language. This explicit knowledge can be coded, 
That is, it's translated into science and then stored, processed, and transmitted through any media. Implicit knowledge, on the other hand, is based on our personal experiences, memories, and convictions. Illustrated as practical skills, it's very difficult for us to convey this knowledge verbally. Yes, sometimes we ourselves are not even aware of this knowledge. We know more than we know how to say, says Mikhail Polanyi. He argued that positivism supplies an imperfect account of knowing as no observer is perfectly impartial. Polanyi's paradigm is a theory that human knowledge of how the world functions and of our own capacity are, to a large extent, beyond our explicit understanding. When investigating implicit knowledge and effective forecasting, one can reason that although conscious evaluations are available to people when predicting their future emotional responses, non-conscious evaluations are not. Serving as an example, a grandmother can write down a favorite cake recipe for her grandchildren. This document, the explicit knowledge. And yet a cake she herself bakes will probably and apparently, inexplicably, taste better because she consciously and unconsciously calls up implicit knowledge during the act of baking. The reasoning? In short, we often don't know what we don't know. And as a result, we unconsciously become insecure. It happens to the best of us as human beings as we strive to be our best. And when we stumble into this state, we unwittingly project this state of insecurity upon others. Born and raised in Tehran, experiencing the Iranian Revolution of 1979, Shabnam Curtis knows firsthand the struggles of uncertain challenges. Through strife and political turmoil, her family survived this Persian paradox, ultimately immigrating to the United States. Now as a certified integral coach, she believes there is a piece of the truth of this life in every human story. Shabnam extols, the more we know ourselves, the deeper connection we build. Shabnam, today I hope to explore how our social interactions often subversively influence our day-to-day -day relationships in a way that frequently becomes self-deprecating and how this holds an adverse influence on both our self-concepts and those of others. I want to frame it that way, self-deprecating, because I feel so often, maybe at times, perhaps our inclination is to point that lens outward. Right. Hopefully, as we do point that lens outward, we first consider ourselves. <laughs> so when social influence is historically contextualized, it becomes clear that there are many factors which contribute to creating an environment, which when viewed might signal some sort of social engineering, which becomes self-doubt in both ourselves and others. Theoretically, that is perhaps an immense assumption. How then do we reverse engineer this so we build mutual confidence together rather than tearing each other down? You just beautifully said it. I love the way that you framed that. And I think as human and homo sapiens, we are in this journey of just having all the theories and then, you know, working on them and to have new theories and obsolete theory so it's always like having a theory for us is is crucial um and i just can see that what you just framed as this theory 
uh, has a lot of points and data points that is very validated, especially, I don't want to say only in the Western culture, but all across the globe. What I see in this is like, let me start with this, a little bit of self-doubt, like any other unpleasant emotion is healthy because it's giving us a message, a message that as far as self-doubt, we could say, well, it's motivating me or it's humbling me. But there is a threshold. When self-doubt passes that threshold, it becomes distressing. It becomes destructive in us and in others. You know, when when we say, when you don't love yourself, you cannot love other people. And a lot of people are like, what do you mean? No, I love a lot of people. But we don't realize that it's a conditional love. We love some part of other people and we love some part of ourselves, if we do. And self-doubt is very similar and very interconnected with this. If we don't see, I usually think that self-belief and self-worth is complementary with self-doubt. The more self-belief we have, the less self-doubt or the healthier self-doubt we carry. So as we view these interactions, as we seek to connect with each other, how do you feel our sense of self-worth and confidence are so deeply influential or influenced by our social interactions and leading us to move into fluctuating states of self-doubt at times? I love that question. There are so many factors playing in this game, right? Um, Well, let's just start with that we all have the culture pressure of you have to accomplish. And if you don't accomplish, you are not worthy. That's the way that we've learned and or we are taught by the culture. But the truth to it is, well, I want to actualize my potential. I want to learn more. I want to accomplish. But that doesn't define my worth. That's where, that's where the gap is, that we think our worth, we believe that our worth is exactly correlated, directly correlated with what we accomplish. That's one of the factors that the society tells us. The whole concept of a status in the society, that the superior, inferior in the, in the society, that's another factor that brings self-doubt. So this person is uh, having a better job making more money, so that's superior to me or I'm superior to other people. And even if those people who feel superior to other people, they still carry a lot of self-doubts because they are not seeing their own self-worth. Their worth is calculated by their accomplishments, not because of their whole being. And what's another factor that plays a direct role in this is the whole culture of consumerism advertisement and i'm not i'm not saying that materialism or or advertisements are bad but it's gotten out of control it has taken over our lives 
to some extent, luxury life, to some extent, having a cozy life, of course, for everybody, it's something that we want to achieve as human beings, but it's taken over our life and it's defining our life. And then we all come to this world with some, you know, intergenerational traumas that we don't, we are not even aware of. We don't even know what happened to our great grandmother, great grandfather, our ancestors, that we carry it in this body right here. Or what about childhood problems and challenges? Those also bring a lot of roles in this creating the self-doubt that I'm not good enough. That's so powerful to me. Questioning our self-worth can at times be rooted or the root of self-doubt, yet questioning ourselves can also empower us. You know, matter of perspective there. Exactly. Where then sometimes might we underserve ourselves by simply blocking one perspective, by not allowing for that optimum view of who and what we are, who and what we have been, and what we may become in the future. What role do you feel social comparison plays in that regard in our self-concept as we engage our community cultures, social media, and the likes of marketing platforms, as you mentioned? Hmm. You know, we um, if I want to look at behind the scene of marketing and social media, especially in younger generation, let's say like Gen Z or even millennials, the rise of depression, the rise of sadly suicide in teenagers, the rise of the sale of drug, um, basically like the, all these SSRI, family drugs, anti-depression, anti-anxiety. These are all those signs for us that social media or marketing has gone out of control. And again, I'm not saying these are bad tools because they can be very helpful. You know, social media has been very helpful in so many different ways to bring people together, to help people in the middle of the revolution in so many different countries. I remember I was talking to someone, just a personal example that like, she was traveling and she was putting, posting all these beautiful pictures of Denver and her having a beautiful time with her boyfriend in Denver. And then when I talked to her after the trip, she was like, oh, I'm actually breaking up. It was a miserable trip. And I was like, so what about those pictures? You know, we don't post all those miserable times. We just post some pictures. And we only show the moments that they they look shiny or they are shiny, but it's not the whole picture of our life. But then it creates that conception in other people or assumption that like, oh, I'm the miserable one. Everybody else is having fun. But that's not the reality of our world. This this whole comparison, this whole self-doubt is created by that, that like, it's it has to be the appearance of me and then it disconnects us from what we actually are what potential we have and how we can actually unfold it you know to me that speaks to that subversive nature where so often we're stuffing down those emotions yes. emotional repression suppression cycles yeah 
Yeah, exactly. And then what happens when we suppress all that emotion, it comes out in a different way because it's so important that, well, a lot of people are blaming Descartes because he was the, the one who said, I think, therefore I am. And <laughs> ever since we were just living in our head. Yeah. So we disconnected ourselves from our body. But nowadays, there are so many research studies that, no, 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 your body is actually very intelligent and it keeps all that trauma, all the suppressed emotion in it. The book, the very famous research that Dr. Bessel van der Kolk has, The Body Keeps the Score, it's just amazing. It shows how... We have suppressed all those unpleasant emotions or even pleasant, you know, we don't sometimes even uh, feel that like we are not allowed to express our joy or even tears of happiness because it's not cool, because it doesn't show us as a strong people. The definition of being strong, being resilient needs to, needs a lot of variation and new additions because we think being a strong is just being a stoic. Being a stoic is part of being a strong, but it's not the whole thing. And if you're not stoic, then we have self-doubts that like, no, I can't do it. I don't have enough to do it. I am not even worthy of doing it. But it's all because we are using up all those energy from those suppressed emotions in our body and we haven't released them. So often we're living within the confines of that bubble, that bubble into sometimes there's multiple bubbles, a bubble around our head, a bubble around our heart. We're bubbling all over the place, yet we're not bubbling over into others. Exactly. Sometimes we have to simply pop that bubble and face adverse and beneficial results. Yeah, to get out of our comfort zone, to see the reality of ourselves and other people, to see that. Being imperfect is perfect to accept our imperfection because we're part of this nature, this beautiful nature, this beautiful earth, this beautiful cosmos. It's not perfect, but it's the imperfection of it is perfect and it's working amazingly. I like looking at that idea of comfort zone, you know, so often we form our own bubble around that zone. Right. That comfort can bubble over into other areas. We don't have to discount the notion of comfort. We can potentially be comfortable with change. We can potentially be comfortable with emotions that cause pain, past, present, future, whatever scenario we frame it in. Where is that zone? And are we inserting ourselves into a zone of genius, a zone where we are familiar, a zone of knowing, a zone of command? Yeah, yeah. Are we also comfortable with moving into that somewhat insecure zone of unfamiliarity and then being comfortable with it? So often I feel that is the difference between the gap and the gain is the either or of having to either feel comfortable or uncomfortable rather than looking at the gain. How we perceive our state of being becomes the gap. Exactly. Right. And then the way I look at it, it's a cycle of change and changing our old habits. Because let's let's face it, when we were little ones, to survive, 
that self-doubt could be helpful because if I didn't have the self-doubt, then I had to doubt my parents or my caregivers. And I couldn't do that possibly as a child. So the self-doubt back then was a survival mechanism to to let me grow and let me just stay in the society and feel the belonging. It was much easier to say, oh, I'm the defected one. My parents are great because my life was dependent on them. Even though no childhood is perfect, no caregiver is perfect, right? Yes. But we stayed with that habit as adults. We just... It's why do we stay with that habit? Because the neurons, the neuron paths are, that's how they are formed. So it's our comfort zone that like, it's easier to feel the self-doubt. In so many cases, it's easier to justify ourselves with the self-doubt rather than just to pushing ourselves out of this comfort zone. And it's the most, um, this this whole not feeling your self-worth and having the self-doubt pattern is the most common pattern that I see in so many of my clients that we just don't have that grip that like I can change it. And we don't even have a picture of how we want to change it. What would be the replacement? We prefer to stay in that comfort zone rather than having a replacement image that this is where I want to go. And these are the steps to take towards that. I can't jump. So often do we perhaps look at that with that we shall overcome attitude or mindset? Do we shift that sometimes and say we shall also work along with where do we create our own resistance in life? Sometimes that resistance is beneficial. If we want to frame it within exercising the muscle frame, sometimes the resistance is beneficial, yet sometimes too much overload tears us down and we fail to bounce back. Finding that role of fluctuation where we can look at it from different angles, different perspectives, and find the optimum state, optimum in and of itself, when we go to the Greek root of the word is light. What lights us up inside? To allow us to share that joint meaning in opti, optimum, what is best and contributes to our growth. I love how you said it, because the way that I see it is you said it that like the resistance is sometimes because of too much in in our life. We are just trying to juggle so many balls And we think everything has the priority. I have to make everybody happy and I have to get everything done and I have to accomplish, accomplish, accomplish. And it's when it's too much, of course, the self-doubt comes in that like, oh, I can't do it. But we don't see that. It's not that I can't do it. It's too much. But the, the light comes in when I see myself as not anymore being in survival mode but in the growth mode. That's why I'm here as a human. That's why I have my prefrontal lobe. That's why I'm not superior to other creatures, but I'm different than other creatures because we can stay in our survival mode forever. You know, we can come in and go and never feel that we could grow, but it's, it's in a way, it's our society's responsibility 
to teach people, even in high school, even in college, that now you are at the age that you have to have that growth mindset because you have so much potential, but use it and choose it in a way that it suits you because every one of us is different. It's not just our fingerprint. Our heartbeat is unique to us. Our nerve system is unique to us. You and I might have the same pattern of the nerve system, but it cannot be exactly the same. So I have to find my own path of growth mindset, but someone has to come and say, this is the point. You have to go, you have to walk in that path now. You survived. Okay, survival is the good thing. You know, it's part of our instinct. We want to survive as a species, as part of the evolution. But but as a human being, we have this opportunity to also grow. So often, as you mentioned, we're walking that path. Where might we recognize when we step into those shoes of superiority? When then might we step either in someone else's path or step on their path where also might we realize where we surrender some of that notion, where do we allow somebody to simply rise to the occasion and be superior in their optimum state? Where do we lean into that? Where do we rely upon that to become that guiding force? For a long time, I, um, I could say that, oh, we have to walk in other people's shoes. But to be honest with you, I didn't know what it meant. And then eventually I was like, oh, to be able to walk in another person's shoes requires that I know how I walk in my own shoes. Because if I don't recognize that I'm allowed to be upset I'm allowed to love. I'm allowed to feel like in a protesting mode or I don't know my own rights and I don't know how I'm reacting versus responding to my own environmental triggers. How can I understand another person yet a different type of person? Because we are all different. So when I started learning that Oh, okay. This is how being more mindful about how I feel and how I'm, am I reacting versus I'm responding and how, how awareness is playing in this game for me. That's when I understood that, you know, when I say simple example, when I say I love not parsley, the other one, um, Cilantro. Cilantro. I love cilantro (laughs) and my husband hates it. And then we found an article that there are 9% of people in the world that their taste spots turn cilantro to a chemical taste. Yes. We are different. like soap. I can't just say, (laughs) I don't like cilantro. I love it. Yeah. But yeah. no, I can love it and you can eat it. not stepped in those shoes. As a chef, that's something I experienced myself. Somewhat coming in and saying, well, you know, this is what you hope to achieve, but you also have to open that door for somebody else to step in. Yeah. Another thing I always tell my clients, I'm like, please feel free to abort your sessions 
but tell me and I'm okay with it because I don't take it personally because it might not be coaching might not be the thing for you now or you might not be ready but I don't take it that this person hated me or I didn't do a good job and another thing is you might connect to another coach better because we are all different Mm. because maybe the way that I speak can trigger someone in a wrong way we don't know you know like I was talking to someone and she was saying me when I talk to this woman I just lose my confidence and then I was like would it be possible that her face or her tone of voice might remind you of some back experience Mm. she was like maybe you know, we, these are all those hidden little things that we don't bring to the equation that it's okay that we, I'm myself and it's okay that I don't like this and it doesn't mean that this person is bad. That's a little bit of a curve where my mind was traveling today and I'm grateful for that because it does bring in another perspective. What things in that trigger might be well beyond the actual person, the actual experience, the actual circumstance, situation, or structure of events. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where does the root of that often lie? Based on what I've been learning um, and now including my personal experience and, and experience with clients, it's based on our perception. Because Lisa Barrett, uh, she's a researcher, and uh, she has this brilliant book, How Our Emotions Are Made. And she explains that our reality is not, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but it says our reality, it's not like a digital photograph of the world. It's not even an exact painting of the world like what Vermeer did. Mm. It's actually like impressionist, like Van Gogh. Our reality is not very clear. And it's all based on my perception from the past. That's how my brain calculates all the time. So one thing is, oh, if I have a lot of bad experience from the past, I can be scared of so many things that are not scary in reality. And I can feel unsafe for a lot of things that are not actually unsafe. But the good part of it is I can create new experience to modify my perception and teach my brain in a different way. I love looking at that idea of fuzzy logic is how it plays out for me. Fuzzy logic. Are we allowed things to somewhat be unfocused to simply allow for a perspective? Are we allowed to kind of allow those lines to blur that we're not so stated in what we believe to be the truth? Right. And each one of us has a piece of the truth. None of us Mm. has the whole truth. And that's where collaboration comes in. That's where teamwork comes in, because we can have the like put different pieces of the truth together. But at the same time, that piece of truth that I have, how blurry it is, how much perspective can I bring into it to make it more clear, to bring more clarity to it? Can I uh, be curious rather than judgmental? You know, like even if we want to talk about self-doubt, if I jump to the conclusion that, oh, I can't do it. I know I can't do it. I'm not worthy of doing it. I'm not worthy of having it. Instead of jumping to this conclusion, can I practice to be more curious? Can I 
maybe I am. What else can I bring to this equation to make it look different? There are different uh, variables in this that I'm not even looking at it. That is so beautifully well said and so brilliant in its contextualization. (laughs) Thank you. I just recently found myself in this space where I'm saying, how do you start to question some of those walls and boundaries you build for yourself? I recently signed up for a course through the University of Edinburgh Mm -hmm. called Know Thyself that explores some of those very things, those unconscious patterns of belief you create within yourself because nobody else is doing it for you. Right, right. So, you know, I challenged myself. I rose to that opportunity to say, where might I open that door to kind of look at some of that fuzzy logic? Where am I blurring up my own lens of view? Exactly. Yeah. All these biases that now we are talking about, you know, self-deception, right? We do it. We do it all the time. Let's say like about <laughs> social media. Um, it's like it. Uh, sometimes, you know, <laughs> it's so cute because my mother is a curious person, but at the same time, she comes every day with like a new healthy information that, oh, this is really good for you. And I'm like, where did you see it? And she's like, well, this doctor was saying, talking about it in Instagram. (laughs) I'm like, well, that's not enough. You know, what is like the data behind it? How are you sure that this doctor is actually talking based on some factual science or even factual science is changing every day. So it's kind of like not written in stone. And now she practiced this. I mean, she made this. Uh, tea with um, the, the the top part of the corn. Mm. <laughs> she drank it and she felt horrible. Oh <laughs> like, why do we do that to ourselves? Why do we believe mm. in anything that social media says? Because it's like just either not having a, a reliable resource or it's just part of a bigger picture that we don't know what the bigger picture is. But people just it makes they feel like it's easier to believe it and to go with it because of the bubble you said, because they are just in their own bubble. And they're like, a lot of people are like, well, we didn't know, we haven't seen that. And like, how many people do you know? How far do you go in the network around you? Is it just your neighborhood, your family, your town? Or are you actually seeing some people in India and China and Malaysia and North Dakota and Florida too, you know? When it comes to mobile service providers, with their high rate plans, extra fees, and hidden cost or expenses, many of the big name networks leave a bad taste in your mouth. Mint Mobile is a new flavor of mobile network service, sharing all the same reliable features of the big name brands, yet at a fraction of the cost. I recently made the change to Mint Mobile, and I can't believe the monthly savings allowing me to put more money in my pocket for the things which truly light me up inside. Making the switch to Mint Mobile is easy. Hosted on the T-Mobile 5G network, Mint gives you premium wireless service on the nation's largest 5G network. With bulk savings on flexible plan options, Mint offers 3, 6, and 12-month plans, and the more months you buy, the more you save. 
Plus, you can also keep your current phone or upgrade to a new one, keep your current number or change to a new one as well, and all of your contacts, apps, and photos will seamlessly and effortlessly follow you to your new low-cost Mint provider. Did I mention the best part? You keep more money in your pocket. And with Mint's referral plan, you can rescue more friends from big wireless bills while earning up to $90 for each referral. Visit our Mint Mobile affiliate link at thelightinside.us forward slash sponsors for additional mobile savings or activate your plan in minutes with the Mint Mobile app. The Effect Heuristic describes how we often rely on our emotions rather than concrete information when making decisions. This allows us to reach a conclusion quickly and easily, but can also distort our thinking and lead us to make suboptimal choices. Most of us live and work in environments that aren't optimized for solid decision-making. And within our relationships and organizations, we are able to identify sources of cognitive bias of all kinds. Several months ago, your friend Alan received an invitation to audition for a play that was being presented by a well-known theater company. Alan has always been passionate about acting, and this would be a big opportunity for him. However, the day they received the invitation was the same day they got back their grade on a very important examination. Unfortunately, Alan failed the test and was naturally very upset about it. Not only were they angry and upset, but their self-esteem took a serious hit. And as a result, they impulsively told the theater company that they were not interested in auditioning for the play. Alan's negative emotions after failing a test led them to overrate the risks of auditioning for the play. They felt that there was a good chance that they would fail at that as well. An action that is illogical, as Alan's performance on the test is completely independent of their acting ability. As a result, they are missing out on what could have been a great experience. This scenario exemplifies the effect heuristic as it demonstrates how we sometimes rely on our emotions instead of logic when making decisions. The conflict between desire to be accurate and the need to feel good about ourselves is one of the major battlegrounds of the self. Many times, the difference between the gap in our thinking and the gain in our growth comes down to blind spots. How, then, do we begin to remove these blind spots so that we can not only see ourselves more clearly, we also clear the lens in how we view others. Know thyself, a precept as old as Socrates, still applies today. But is introspection the best path to self-knowledge? It is common for people not to have accurate access to their inner selves. Just how, then, might they increase this sense of self-awareness? Timothy D. Wilson introduces us to a hidden mental world of judgments, feelings, and motives that introspection may never show us, revealing to us an unconscious more powerful than Freud's and even more pervasive in our daily life. Timothy Wilson's book, Strangers to Ourselves, marks a revolution in how we come to know ourselves. You see, if we don't know ourselves, our potentials, feelings, or motivations, it is most often, Wilson tells us, because we have developed a plausible story about ourselves that is out of touch with our adaptive unconscious, citing evidence that too much introspection can actually do damage. 
Wilson makes the case for better ways of discovering our unconscious selves. If you want to know who you are and what you feel or what you're like, Wilson advises you to pay attention to what you actually do and what other people think and feel about you. Going on to suggest that we access this awareness while investigating implicit knowledge and effective forecasting. Reasoning that although conscious evaluations are available to people when predicting their future emotional responses, unconscious evaluations are not. As you can see in this observation, the science is clear. Humans take mental shortcuts. Just why and how we do this and how you avoid it are perhaps a little more cloudy. Ability, information overload, implicit memories, and speed of access all contribute to our diminishing ability to effectively process our cognitive interactions. An integrated framework is proposed to synthesize long-standing research on eight seemingly unrelated cognitive decision-making biases. In the past six decades, hundreds of empirical studies have yielded a number of rules of thumb that describe how humans deviate systematically from normative expectations. In order to explain these cognitive biases, a number of complementary mechanisms have been proposed. Here it is suggested at least eight of these empirically detected decision-making biases can be produced by simply assuming noisy deviations in the memory-based information processes that convert objective evidence or observations into subjective estimations or decisions. This integrative framework is presented to show how similar noise-based mechanisms can lead to conservatism, the Bayesian likelihood bias, illusory correlations, biased self-other placement, sub-additivity, exaggerated expectation, the confidence bias, and the hard, easy effect. Within our noisy brains... Certain regions are always grinding away at involuntary activities like daydreaming, worrying about the future, and self-chatter, taking up to as much as 47% of our waking time, constituting what we've come to know as mind-wandering. And while it can tug your attention away from the present and contribute to anxiety and depression, cognitive neuroscientist Moshi Barr seeks to tell you about the method behind this apparent madness. So says Professor Barr, head of the Cognitive Neuroscience Lab at Bar Ilan University and author of Mind Wondering, is exploring how this state of mental chatter can improve our mood and increase our creativity. Even going on to say how our mental chatter is essential in developing our sense of self, better relating to others, and making associations that help you understand the world around you. However, these automatically activated evaluations contribute to in-the-moment emotional experiences, and thus they account for misforecasts resulting in discrepancies between effective forecasts and actual experiences. It's easy to see the human mind is often referred to as a single entity when the reality is that it consists of multiple processes working together. While our system of thinking involves various mental feedback loops, the mind is a highly developed system that can accomplish many things at the same time. Yet it is possible to perform both conscious and non-conscious behavior at the same time. Researchers have discovered a great deal outside of the conscious thoughts of the people they studied. 
The brain works most effectively when it is delegating much of its high-level mental processing to the unconscious. William Hamilton noted that the human mind can attend to one thing non-consciously while performing another behavior consciously, such as drifting to another train of thought while reading aloud. Since much of what we know about ourselves resides outside of conscious awareness, a person's behavior and personality are greatly influenced by the non-conscious mind. The non-conscious mind often has more influence on our behavior than our conscious mind and the two minds often battling in conflict and energetic resistance, making it difficult to accurately align our desires in our actions. You see, non-conscious adaptive minds are excellent at assessing the world, assisting us in setting goals, initiating action, and warning us to danger. They are also quite adept at stimulating the rise of anxiety, fear, and self-doubt, all forming the core behavioral patterns that constitute insecurity. And just how do we more effectively navigate our experiences when insecurity and self-doubt tend to arise? We turn our focus to author, TEDx speaker, and confidence coach Jamin Frazier of The Insecurity Project. Jamin specializes in helping entrepreneurs, leaders, and business owners eradicate insecurity so they can show up to life unhindered by doubt, fear, and self-limiting beliefs. He is widely recognized as one of Australia's best life coaches and a leading voice globally on the subject of personal insecurity. Jamin, you frequently share how without a doubt, the number one performance inhibitor in life and business for those beyond the age of 35 is personal insecurity. Going on to say that insecurity is natural, useful, and removable when necessary. Can you describe for our listeners how insecurity might be experienced for each of us? Hmm. I think insecurity is insidious. It's very subtle. Uh, people are insecure about being insecure. So it's, it's a difficult thing to pin down. Uh, I think, you know, the human condition is that we're desperate to feel like we are a good person, but we're actually afraid that if all were laid bare, we'd be found out as somehow lacking or somehow inadequate or somehow bad. So I think it's that underlying assumption that we can't ever fully relax and be ourselves. We've got to show up guarded and defensive so that no one knows the real us because we feel at our core that the real us has some flaws. And so I think that that insecurity, that fear of I'm not quite good enough, I don't quite belong, I'm not smart enough, strong enough, um, attractive enough, there, there's some lack and limit in me. I think that is at the heart of insecurity and it shows up in all kinds of interesting ways to divert attention away from that fear ever being realized. I'm sure we'll explore those in, in our conversation, but at its heart, that, that fear of being found out or somehow lacking is the core of insecurity. As you know, our intention today is to explore the role insecurity and uncertainty or a lack of confidence plays in why socially we often engage in what we deem uncomfortable humor, specifically why humor is sometimes perhaps weaponized as it surfaces in the form of social rejection or ostracism. I'd like to look at what it means to belittle and what our intentions, motives, or desires serve to inappropriate behavior where people adopt condescending attitudes. That's a lot. But uh, putting others down, maybe, and feeling as if they might be less. You know, let's look at how that starts to source. Do others make us feel lesser 
as we're insecure? Or is that some of our own action, perhaps? What are some of the underlying reasons why someone potentially feels inclined to act upon their insecurity? Uh, such a fascinating topic and a really important one. I think it, it's great your work in highlighting this because you can't change what you can't see. So um, I think to answer that question, I, I really love the six core needs model. I think it's some of Anthony Robbins' finest contribution to the personal development space and it helps, it helps separate behavior from intention. So I think at the heart of belittling or uncomfortable humor, it does come back to this need for significance, or sometimes certainty and sometimes also love and connection. But significance to me is the core of it. If you think about, you know, being a child, you have your consciousness turned on, but also are loosely aware of the fact that these needs are actually having to be met and you don't have the capacity to meet them internally. So you're going to need certainty, variety, significance, love. You're going to need to source those externally. And you'll do whatever you, whatever you can to fill your cup. And so one of the strategies that's developed from a very young age is through comparison. It's like, well, I'll know that I'm good if I can find a reference point. I'll find that I'm better than, then I know that I'm safe because I'm not the weakest link. And so any strategy to elevate myself above my peers, above those around me, helps me feel safe, helps me feel secure, and helps me feel like I, I must be a good person because I'm better than you. So, uh, so anything that you can that can cause you to stand above. Um, and if you've got to put someone down in order to do that, well, then by reference, you are better than. So I think that need for significance drives that in a really ugly way. But I think that at its core is what's going on there. I find it really pertinent that you mentioned that very state of uncertainty. I looked into finding some of those textbook definitions of insecurity, you know, a feeling of inadequacy, lack of self-confidence and inability to cope accompanied by general anxiety driven by uncertainty, that fear of the unknown. What role do you feel that place as we start to move into some of these more insecure states, that inability to simply accept and allow what might be. Again, the six core needs. So we we cannot survive without certainty. Some people teach the, the needs in a hierarchy. And so they would say, oh, well, some people need more certainty than others. Uh, I got a friend who would say of me that uh, the difference between you and I, Jamin, is we need different amounts of certainty. He sees me as adventurous, risk-taking, confident, um, can think on my feet where he's uh, risk averse, analytical, slow to make decisions. And I just say, no, no, we both need exactly the same amounts of certainty. I've just found a really resourceful way to meet that internally and so don't need to pay as much attention to it. My cup's full. He, on the other hand, has found very poor means of meeting the need for certainty. So it's constantly top of mind. His cup's never full and he always feels uncertain. So I think the human the human being cannot survive in uncertainty. And so, again, the child can only look outside themselves for certainty, craves control, craves things going a certain way, but people behaving in a certain way so they can feel a sense of order. When those external means of certainty are jeopardized, then that forces you know, that creates great internal uncertainty and a person can't survive there. So I think the the whole process of growing up is to find ways to self-satisfy and to be self-sufficient. And especially when it comes to certainty, um, you can't just say, look, I don't need certainty anymore. I can survive in more un- more un- increasingly uncertain places. That's not possible. In order to 
uh, appear to be able to cope with things not going the way that you'd like them to or, or changing. It means you have to have a very high level of internal certainty that you know that you're a good person. You know that you, you are capable and confident. You know that whatever happens, you'll show up in a way that will meet the challenge, rise to meet the challenge, and, and you've got this. So this idea of embracing uncertainty and backing yourself uh, means then you can survive not needing things to go a certain way, and, uh, but you still need high levels of certainty. That perceived struggle for certainty sometimes to me surfaces as avoidance, dodging what we deem the real issue. There's a general tendency to engage experiential avoidance on many levels where we look to sidestep the negative, somewhat what we deem the negative aspect, for example. What role do you feel that plays in developing secure trust? Yeah, well, I think if you've got this fear that you can't deal with life, you've kind of taught yourself that you need to keep running away and resorting to historical forms of certainty where you have you you crave control or you try and control things, um, then you don't survive in increasing complexity. You sabotage things so that they stay the way that you want them to, um, and that can create very ugly patterns of behavior, especially for an adult who every day shows up to a world that's constantly changing. So if you can't if you can't handle that internally, you're in strife, and you're likely to cause chaos for those around you as well. In that regard, what role do you feel our sense of familiarity then plays as we not only view ourselves but as we interact with others? You know, getting caught in our own patterns and our own biases, I think, is the the tendency to create. Um, we, we create structure for our lives to give ourselves certainty, and and because something works, then we rarely go back and review it. And so the challenge is, it only works for a season. We develop strategies to to meet needs and protect fears in certain seasons, and they work well enough. However, the season changes and people still cling to that bias, that strategy, that setup, um, which may have served them well there, but now the world's changed, the situation's changed, and they're still clinging to that map of the world or that narrative that's given them historical certainty. And it's a it's a very difficult thing to, to have a historic map to try to navigate new territory. I think about my own life and those I've grown up with, and I, and I think that as seasons have changed, I'm most grateful for my ability to uh, have recreated myself, to reinvented myself in each new season. I look back at friends and family who've got stuck in a certain way of being and, and the world's changed and the season's changed and they have not and they've clung to those biases and that it makes them very rigid and, and unable to handle the complexity of a, of a rapidly changing world. So as we're growing up, we're learning some of these roles and models of security, are we not? We are. We're constantly looking around how others do it, taking our lead from what we see and uh, assuming that others know better because they've they've lived longer. So I think that's constantly the child's assumption. Parents know best, adults know best, all right, then I'll, I'll take my cues from what others are doing around me. It's, it's a challenging thing to bring things in-house and to reference your own opinion. And um, I think that's probably the Freud talks about, um, you know, the human's greatest challenge is to break free from the nest. There's great forces at work, both in the parent and the child that, that, that actively resist that freedom. And so I think lots of people stay in the patterns they've seen 
in their family and keep referring to them even when they've left the home physically, they're still stuck there emotionally or psychologically. In that regard, aren't we somewhat conditioned then to look towards others somewhat insistently to find and discover that sense of certainty and security? Very, very much so. And I think so much of the work that I do with people could be described as helping them fully become adults. And it's, it seems like that shouldn't be work that has to be done. It should be natural, but it seems <laughs> not. It seems, you know, the role of a parent is to prepare their children for adulthood, which is self-sufficiency. And so they understand that physically and financially, you know, can my child dress themselves? Can they feed themselves? Or can they earn their own money? Can they drive their own car? Great. They're an adult tick, but still emotionally, intellectually, psychologically, spiritually, they're still externally referenced. They're still very much needy and dependent on those around them. And so in so many ways, it's still, it's still a child and still then living out that conditioning to look around and take their cues from what others think they should or shouldn't be doing. What, what is right and wrong, good and bad, live out of the maps that they've inherited. So but I think it's such a common issue, but it creates chaos for the adult person because um, those external reference points can't possibly qualify you to, to live effectively as a human being. You're the only one of you. Uh, and so how could anyone else possibly know what you should or shouldn't do? And so yeah, I, I totally agree. I've always been kind of fascinated by how we tend to have this idea of responsibility thrust upon us as we're raised. You know, be responsible for yourself. Take accountability. Yet we miss some of that gap. We never hear anything about the role of volition, what exactly volition is, just simply being aware of yourself and confidently embracing that. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's a great point. Uh, I think there's uh, uh, self-awareness is not a very common trait. People, people have a broad idea of what it means to be responsible and what is required of them to function, but often do it in the dark and <laughs> stumble around with assumptions and external reference points. So that idea of I am me and what does it mean to be me and I'm the only one of me and developing a really beautiful relationship with your own self, uh, understanding your own nature, the ability to trust your nature, the, the ability to trust your own desire. Um, <laughs> not many people do that work and so are at sea about in their own body, in their own self as to how to be themselves in the world today. You mentioned those assumptions, you know, those assumptions are very often driven by expectation and obligation, not mm. to say that those things don't give us somewhat of an anchoring point. But as we lean into some of that more overemphasis on those states, we then tend to question whether or not we're filling those expectations and obligations. Mm. Absolutely. That again is the externally referenced human being. What do others want for me? What should or shouldn't I be doing? Because if I can please you, if I can meet your expectations, then I must be a good person. I must be significant. I must have value. Then I'll belong to you. So uh, it happens that that's how people make their decisions on what they should or shouldn't do, those obligations and expectations. Uh, all the while they, they, dehumanize themselves because they stop listening to their own self and constantly listen to what's around them. That whole role of validation to me can be such a fascinating, somewhat tripping point we often stumble into. Uh, it's, it's everything that 
that internal validation. Can you look into your own eyes and deeply love and accept yourself? Because if you can't or if you're unwilling to, uh, then you you make yourself very vulnerable in the world because if I need you to validate and accept me, then I have to play the game by your rules. I have to be constantly aware of what I think you want me to do or not do and obsess about fulfilling those expectations and not just for you but for everyone around you. And even when I do feel like I'm being validated by you, it's fleeting. Because then I'll think, well, did you really mean to validate me? Uh, can I guarantee that I've got it again tomorrow? Well, I have to work just as hard to keep gaining that validation. I think it's a descent into madness when when you are externally craving validation. Obviously, the child has to. The child doesn't have the capacity to self-validate. But again, that is the role of the adult, to, to, to work out how to meet those needs for yourself. That's an interesting role to look at how that starts to form in our childhood, how a lot of our patterns and conditions run counter to that. You know, everything from how we correct, I'll say correct and steer children rather than maybe that notion of discipline, you know, that that's a whole nother conversation today. Maybe correction, of course, versus discipline. How does that start to surface in our sense of confidence? Are we being confidently and gently nudged back on course or are we harshly being admonished and made to feel like we're in the wrong? Yeah. I mean, I have people ask me all the time because I specialize in insecurity. Often their mind goes, well, how do I protect my children from being insecure? What do I need to do differently as a parent? And I think firstly, even perfect parents don't prevent their child from developing insecurities, which is a very important part to know. And sometimes the person who obsesses about being perfect makes it most difficult for their child to develop their own sense of self (laughs) because they're so, the parent is so good and so present and so loving and so righteous and so, and so, and so wise. So the child always continues to defer. Um, But I think, I think the thing that really happens for a child is they understand there's a transaction to be made. They understand that the parents have validation, have acceptance, have love, have certainty, have significance for them. And they need to behave in certain ways to get that from them. And they kind of gamify it unconsciously. Oh, I see if I like certain sports, if I, uh, I might, you know, my dad will like me, he'll accept me, he'll validate me. If I'm stoic and emotionless, my dad will be proud of me. If I'm, if I'm emotional, my dad will criticize. Okay, cool. I'll then develop a character that is stoic and like soccer um, so that I can get what I need. Um, and then you think that's who you are, but you've just developed a character to uh, win at that game. So, uh, yeah, I think the challenge of parenting is uh, a, a difficult one. Uh, but whatever happens to the, the child, it, it is it is our own responsibility to go back and reparent ourselves. That's part of the healing work that is part of fully growing up. Your parents are not going to get it right. They'll they'll have excesses and deficiencies, and that's part of your gift, uh, that opportunity to then go back and be right in your own eyes and reparent yourself. It's interesting on a number of regards. First, to look at how we're looking at that act of what we deem as reparenting when we're adults. You know, we're trying to maybe shed some of that skin, so to speak, of what we learned as children, sometimes looking at that in relationship to that notion of developing a thick skin, what might that skin be keeping in or out Mm. to me comes real relevant in this moment. You know, what are we just simply holding on to? 
What from our past are we simply hanging on to? How might that then serve to surface as trauma in our response? Which to me is very rooted in insecurity. We're not maybe going completely down that path, but we'll nod to it while it's here today. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the awareness of identity when you think about who you are, uh, people are often really curious about their past to try and find evidence of who they are as a human being. Um, but that's a difficult place to look because who you are uh, referenced by who you've been is simply the character you've developed to meet needs and protect fear. So you may have developed a persona that's quite uh, funny or thick skinned or emotional or, or stoic. Um, all that is just gamified your experience of being validated and accepted. It's not really who you are. It's just it's the game that you've played. And so the idea of going back and examining those characters and personas and realizing what role they served and what strategy they were delivering means if you can get eyes on them, you can update them, you can improve them, you can realize that you can you can recreate your own strategy to meet needs. You could be a, a different person. You could upgrade the strategies where you've noticed back to the humor piece, you've noticed you've developed a strategy of being the funny guy or the clown or the one who has a quick wit or a sharp tongue. And that's just, you've noticed that was your strategy to elevate yourself as a child and that worked for you. Well, that's not who you are. Like you're not tied to that mode of showing up in the world just because it worked well enough in, in a time. You could go back and question uh, that <laughs> strategy and improve it and and develop a new persona and a new identity that's more wholehearted or aligned to your values and, and not as hurtful in the world. And that leads back to that notion of seeking that sense of certainty. I find it fascinating that we say, I'm looking for who I am in a past tense. People looking for who they are is present tense. What you're being now, yet we go to what we were to sure. discover who we are. I think that's so, that's so true. And it, I think that goes to the assumption that behavior is the most accurate indicator of character. So we think, well, you know a person by how they behave. If a person behaves a certain way, now, now I know you. If you steal, I get it. You are a thief. If you lie, I get it. You are a liar. Um, that's such a strange thing to do because behavior is just an attempt to meet needs and protect fears. And so we develop patterns of behavior that uh, reward us, but it's not who we are. Of course, you, you could be whoever you want to be. And when you understand the freedom you have and the flexibility you have um, to be anyone, then it's an exciting thing. But in order to do that, you have to set yourself free from the strategies you, you've developed in the past, update those assumptions, create better maps for yourself, uh, upgrade your beliefs and your, your strategies to meet those core needs. Yeah, it's interesting. We look at that whole notion of labeling the action. You lied is the action, yet now suddenly you are the liar. Yeah. We create that categorization that automatically pigeonholes our belief about someone or something. I listened to an interesting podcast this past weekend, looking at that very idea notion somewhat comically at how there was a tendency to name birds and it became very misogynistic in some regards, or it was appropriated misogynistic, but based on the characteristics of trying to categorize birds, we try to literally pigeonhole things to form mm. that certainty. And that's as far as I'm going to go with it, with 
the aside today. I I love thinking about the power of labels because they become prisons for people. People look at how they've behaved or how others have behaved, give it a label, and then they say, that's who I am. I had a conversation with someone this week who referred to themselves as an empath. Oh, that's that's who I am, Jamin. I am an empath. I was just so curious by why you would create such a prison for yourself and misunderstand the fact that, no, you've just developed a strategy where if you can prioritise other people's feelings above your own, seem to be caring and compassionate, you'll be rewarded by being accepted. That's all you've done. <laughs> like, it's not actually about them. You just want to fit in. You want to feel like you're a good person and that was your best plan when you were growing up. So that's who you are. You are an empath. That's, that's such a strange pigeonhole and that will cause you and others a lot of grief in the world. And that's always kind of been fascinating to look at with somewhat an eye of curiosity, that notion of being an empath. Just from that regard, if I'm associating myself with being reactive to everyone's emotions, I'm automatically creating that label where I say I am going to consciously react to everybody's emotions. Yeah. That's interesting why you would pigeonhole yourself with that label. I'm just going to throw that out there. Of, of course. And the reason why anyone would do that is because it meets needs and protect fears. So the fear of, well, I don't think I'm a very good person or a likable person. So I'll find the thing that I can would guess would make me the most likable. Okay. If I can be seen to be someone who cares about others' emotions, then they will in turn like me. And then if they like me, well, I'll feel like I'm good. So that's, it's all, it's all that's going on there. It's a strategy to uh, hide behind a strategy to validate a strategy to find certainty, a strategy to find meaning and acceptance. Um, All very outdated because it starts when you're young, when you don't have any other options, but as you progress, you develop lots more options. The adult has far more options and the best of those options are to bring those core needs in-house rather than constantly outsourcing them. In that regard to me, it appears that we then somewhat seek dominance or superiority over that sense of security, over that sense of certainty in order to validate it. Uh, absolutely. And uh, I think sometimes that shows up as narcissism. So that, that dominance and that control, uh, you know, it seems like, right, well, I'm so insecure about who I am. What I'll do is run the opposite direction. I'll be the loudest person, the most dominant person, the most controlling person. Uh, and so you'll think that I'm so confident. You'll think that I've got it all together because I'm overcompensating and, <laughs> and controlling everything and everyone all the time. You know, I think the the path that people take to protect themselves from their deepest fear about who they really are is either to run or to hide. So that shows up as either heroic quests to demonstrate how wonderful you are by what you can achieve. So you got to be, it's a look at me kind of strategy. I'll, I'll, I'm a good person. I'm an important person. I'm a, I'm a meaningful person because of what I do. And so if that's your strategy, then you can never rest. You've got to do more and more and more because you're only as good as your last performance or as the saying about you or others kind of go down the hide path. So they find certainty in, in the safety of their structures, the safety of their comfort zones, the safety of their identities they've created or personas they've created. So they bunker down into safe pockets of the world that they can control where they're never going to get questioned, never going to get found out because they're well within their limits of what they know and can perform there consistently. Either way, it's all with the, the, 
the aim of never really being exposed to who you who you think you might be. Learning to grow is like learning to fly. We just trust the process and take the leap. Alan Watts tells us the only place you have to begin is now, because here is where we are. At the risk of going out on a limb, every area of our lives is guided and informed by our innate sense of security. Embracing uncertainty and risk can be a source of insecurity, leaving it somewhat difficult to notice and define. In the quixotic quest for certainty, one is often left feeling anxious, struggling with the need to find supporting evidence for our beliefs. As human beings, we trust ourselves in an endless struggle to erase all doubt. Once we eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, ultimately becomes our truth. One of our greatest conundrums is that we seldom know which fate awaits us. For every outside, there is an inside, and for every inside, there is an outside. What is esoteric, what is profound, and what is deep, we call implicit. What is obvious and open, we call explicit. And I in my environment, and you in your environment, are explicitly different as different can be, yet implicitly go together. Foregoing this self, the universe grows I. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or loved one. And as always, we're grateful for you, our valued listening community. I'm Jeffrey Biesecker. This has been The Light Inside.